How would you characterize how the last half hour went, David? <laughs> I, I thought I thought it went. Uh, we just flipped the script. Yeah, this is, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was expecting this. <laughs> Hey everybody and welcome to How the Fuck Did You Get That Job, the show where two not-so-interesting guys ask interesting people one question and then interrupt them as they try to answer it. <laughs> Joining us today is Bill Weir. Bill has an incredible career as a journalist spanning across three decades. He's been a regular contributor to television shows like Monday Night Football, ABC World News, Good Morning America, and Nightline. He's broadcasted live from space shuttle launches, Tibet, Hurricane Katrina, and Afghanistan, just to name a few. His own show, The Wonderlist with Bill Weir, ran for three seasons on CNN and has an 8 out of 10 on IMDb. Today, Bill is the chief climate correspondent for CNN. Bill, welcome to the show. And how the fuck did you get that job? <laughs> Jake, thank you for having me. Uh, stupid luck and persistence, maybe? Combo? <laughs> that's, that's been the best answer anyone's had off the top. Most people have to rewind. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's a long windup. That's that's the short, pithy answer. But uh, yeah, no, I've had a really bizarre, uh, twisty, um, not unconventional career path that I never would have imagined if I if I could go back in time and talk to myself at your age, at the, at the age of you, young lads. It would be hard to convince that person that of the ride he was going to take. But I've, I've been so fortunate and loved every. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know I was loving it at the at the time, but really loved every minute of it. Take us take us back to so you're you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Was it like, I, and I guess before even even before then, were you always like, I want to be a journalist? So yeah, I mean, really, um, I was good friends with your dad, uh, as you know, and and he he the people around me influenced me in many ways. In in hindsight, that you. Sort of like Steve Jobs gave that commencement address at Stanford, and he says you can never connect the dots. Uh, you can only connect them going backwards in your life, you know. And so um, I, I expressed an interest in writing early on, and so your grandma Emmy, you know, gave me a book on playwriting, which I thought was cool, like a David Mamet type thing. I was on, and then I read All the President's Men, and I had a Woodward and Bernstein sort of fantasy that that seemed cool to me. My dad was big on newspapers and, and network broadcast TV, so we watched Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather every night. And so depending on the day, I either wanted to be David Letterman or Peter Jennings, you know, and I had a, lot, a bunch of different ideas to that. But I knew there had to be writing involved and maybe some, some sort of performance delivery. And... Uh, and my first day at school in Oklahoma at Oral Roberts, I didn't even know what major to pick. I picked pre-med because doctors got uh, a lot of phone numbers. Uh, <laughs> that was like my logic. And then, uh, and then I was wandering through campus and there was a, a sign up that said, uh, Marine Biology Lab in Montego Bay, Jamaica over spring break and you got uh, nine science credits. So I changed my major to marine biology so I could go to Jamaica. And that was sort of my really genius, well-thought-out academic plan. And then I transferred. Uh, Oral Roberts didn't, wasn't the right fit. I looked around and realized, what am I doing in Oklahoma? I can go anywhere. And so I applied to Hawaii and Miami and Pepperdine because they were the three schools that offered surfing as a PE credit. 
And I somehow got into Pepperdine with the most financial aid of anywhere else. So I went to Malibu, had never seen the campus. Uh, one of our friends on our baseball team with your dad, Kent Weaver, had been and seen the campus and said it was so cool. And their mascot is the waves. So I was like, oh, so I should try to get into there. And uh, somehow I did and drove out there sight unseen and stumbled into the sort of broadcasting department. They had a TV station and a little radio station and a newspaper and a magazine. And if you were the editor or the managing editor, uh, you got a scholarship. So that's how I got through Pepperdine. And then from there, it was just like, all right, I could do this, you know, put together a resume tape and start sending it out to every TV station in the country. And how, what was that process like? Cause that's, I mean, I think the one thing that's the same for journalists now and like when you were starting out is like that hustle, like you're talking about sending it out to everybody. Like yeah. what was it a pretty intimidating field to try to get a job in sort of oh, as, as a day? I mean, looking back now, it's so quaint because right, this is pre-internet. So the, there was every year, the only way you knew what were all the TV stations in, in the country Broadcasting magazine would put out their yearbook, and it looked like a phone book. And you go through it, and I wish I could. I, I wish I'd dug it up. I have it somewhere. But on a Manila like file folder, I, I wrote in markers like here are the top twenty markets I want to work in, and you know the numbers. It had San Diego and Boston, <laughs> like these insanely big you know television markets. And I went to, through Broadcasting Yearbook and on every one of those markets, you know, there were three stations and I'd send my resume tape, which was back then the size of like a book like this, three quarter inch resume tapes. And I stole as many as I could from the campus TV station. We got them donated from like old, you know, small TV stations and made like 150 copies of my resume reel. And we just cold call it, you know, just send, send a package in the mail, dear you know, news director in Boise. Here's who I am. Here's what I want to do. Here's my tape. And now you send a, a Vimeo link or a YouTube link. Somebody can be watching your work within minutes. You know, imagine these TV news directors in these small stations. Everyone I worked in had a stack of these tapes. You could build like a deck off your house with out of these tapes. And so the, the, the chances of somebody actually sitting down, putting your tape in, watching it you know it's the odds were against us and so I was just gunning them out there and I didn't think I'd get a, I didn't get a rejection letter or anything back for eight or nine months and finally I got a phone call from the news director of a station in Austin Minnesota and I had applied he had put up an, a blind box ad in like electronic media magazine uh, which got, came every month and it was like the old kind of, you know, wanted weekend sportscaster, small Midwestern market. Here's a P.O. box. And I had no idea where I was applying. And so this guy's like, I'm the station. I, I do the news here at uh, KA in Austin. And I thought it was Austin, Texas. And I got really excited. And he said, no, Austin, Minnesota. <laughs> like, what is that? And it's this tiny little town where they make spam in the, in the sort of the butt end of Minnesota, right on the Iowa border. And uh, that was my first gig. And what, what were you covering? Like with, with us in Austin, Minnesota, was it like uh, local it was, sports or was it like the Vikings? Totally. Yeah. It was both. <laughs> and now get this. So it is market like 180 out of 205 markets. So it's a tiny <laughs> little town. It's a three town market. It's Austin, um, Rochester, where Mayo Clinic is. 
and Mason City, Iowa. And so there was a station in each town. <clears throat> and yeah, it was like deer hunting season. You'd go, you get a call and guys like, I'm at the truck stop. I shot a 16 point buck and you go out there and film the dead deer in the back of his truck. Or you go shoot girls basketball or wrestling, you know, and, and the winter it'd be freezing. And so your camera would fog up when you're going from indoor to out. You know. It was total one-man band, go back, edit your tape, highlights, do your own sports cast. And then I was a general assignment reporter. I was covering, like, you know, just the most small two-headed deer, you know, calf stories and mall openings. But the year I was there as the weekend sports guy, the Twin Cities hosted the World Series, Super Bowl, Final Four, Stanley Cup, U.S. Open, all I got to cover my first job. So it was the Twins, Braves, World Series. It was Duke and beating Michigan in the national championship game. You know, Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley years. It was, um, but it was really great. And so I got to cut my teeth on these, all these big events my first, just as a punk, uh, you know, cub reporter. And then so your, your next job was the Green Bay job, right? Yeah, yeah. So you get you get a call from the Green Bay Station. Was that kind of like, oh, big city lights now compared well, to Austin? Yeah, I was kind of arrogant. I still was cocky, and I was applying to places I had no business applying to. I really wanted to try to get to Milwaukee or Chicago. I'm like, you oh, know, there's an opening in Green Bay, a number two sports guy in Green Bay. I should be able to get this job. I felt pretty good about it. And sure enough, they they, they called, and it was easy. I just drove over there. It's a couple hours from where I was. And the best part of that was the, the news director there. He says, let me show you how life's going to be here. And he puts in the air check from uh, 1990, I guess when the first Gulf War broke out. And the anchor comes on and goes, ladies and gentlemen, you know, the United States has just declared war on Saddam Hussein. Missiles are firing in the Gulf, blah, blah, blah. We'll have more on that in a moment, but first, today's Packers scrimmage at <laughs> Lambeau Field. And the sports director came on and did like four minutes of scrimmage highlights, you know, like training camp <laughs> on the day of the war broke out. And so then, sure enough, I got there, and we probably led the newscast, not the sports, the newscast, 200 nights a year with the Packers. Like the most, you know, it was like... A high school town with a pro team is how it felt, and everybody hung on every detail. And so and that was super fun. Was that that was when Brett was? Did you get there the same year Brett was there, or Brett started? I got there right after Brett had arrived. Like he'd only been there a couple months, and wow. so uh, people were still trying to figure out how to say his name and how to say Keel, Mississippi, and and it was such a small town, and he was such a young. He was figuring it out. So he would be, he'd go out drinking on a Saturday night before a game. Like, you know, you'd see him out. And, but people, he, he quickly caught on how serious it was. But it, that was really fun. And that was, uh, Reggie White came, you know, was a huge signing. My, it was the whole Mike Holmgren era. And I haven't been, I'm from Wisconsin originally. And I've always grown up cheering for the Packers. It was really a thrill because I really cared about that. When I worked, and then I went to Chicago and did sports where I had to pretend to care about the Bears when inside I was full of hatred and loathing. <laughs> when, when you were uh, making the move from Green Bay to Chicago, was that like the, you're finally getting to that like limelight big city job? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, in Green Bay, 
is where you figure it's, you know, it's a mid-level market. You know, everything is market size. So if you want to crack the top 10, 20 and whatever. Um, but around us, it was Milwaukee or Chicago. And so, and I, I, that's when I started looking for an agent. I just hired my first agent when I was in Green Bay, a guy at William Morris. WGN Morning News was launching and they wanted a sports guy, but it was a super personality driven show. To this day, it's one of, if anybody has ever seen it, it's more of an improv troupe than a news team. They're really funny and creative. And so that was a treat. And um, as, as a bonus, I ended up being one of the morning anchors, but I went there to do sports as the number three sports guy. Uh, there was two guys, Rich King, Dan Rohn, longtime Chicago local sports legends. And I was going to be the number three guy that ended up doing the morning show. But as a result of that, we were the Bulls and Cubs stations. And so I got to, I lived across the street from Wrigley and went to probably 70 games my first year in Chicago. Uh, and then I was the sideline reporter for the Bulls telecasts in for Jordan's last three championships. So um, that was a thrill. So we had this fun show in the morning and everybody. In and in Chicago, you're sort of at the top of the food chain, unlike L.A. or New York or Hollywood or Broadway. You know, your local anchors don't really matter. But in Chicago, they really care about their local news people. So it was really fun to be there. And... Uh, I haven't thought about those years in a long time, but the last dance um, brought some of that back in the first episode. <laughs> I was sleeping because I have a new baby. I did, so I'm passed out when it happened, and I woke up and my phone exploded <laughs> because they ran some old clip from those days and brought back some really fun memories. Yeah, and you, you've been featured a couple times in the last dance. Did that When you were covering that season, did that feel like – Right now, it it, feel, it almost feels like a seismic sports event. Like it's just yeah. like did it did, did it feel like that at time? Like we're watching history, for sure. But you know, you adapt to it, and by that time, they had won six of them. You know, and that town, that sports town. I always said it was you know primarily it's a Bears town. I think a lot of Chicagoans would have given away three of those Bulls titles. They have one more, like Bears Super Bowl, uh, and then the baseball fans are split. It's North side, South side. And then, but the Bulls always sucked. You know, the Bulls were always this sort of punchline team. And when Jordan and Pippen came around and they, it galvanized them like anything, more than the 85 Bears, anything like that. And, but then at a certain point, you just kind of got used to it. And so you, it was like, I guess, being a Patriots fan or, you know, it becomes expected and, and much more of a soap opera is the storyline because we know they're good. It's just a matter mm -hmm. of how many, are they going to win 72 games? You know, does Scotty really hate Terry Crowd? You know, all the stuff that I think that's brilliantly coming out in this. There's so much there for a miniseries, and it was really shrewd to make it about that season because uh, it was like the Beatles' last album, you know? So, but at the time, it still felt very. When I got out to LA and was covering this, so then I went from there to Los Angeles, and I was a sports director at KBC for Shaq and Kobe's first three. So I was kind of like stalking Phil Jackson. And, but there that felt much more, you know, global, right? Cause you had all these movie stars at, at the Staples Center and everything. Chicago, it still felt like this local blue collar team has made good year after year, you know? And then from LA, did you kind of get the sense like that you were, 
I, I don't want to say like sick of sports or sick of like, but like ready for like a little bit more of a shift than just like a new city. Yeah, I was ready for that actually before I got to LA when I, I left Chicago. So the, shot, the, the morning show in Chicago spoiled me because we got to do all these really creative things and it felt more like a late night show than a morning news show. And so what I really want to do is create my own program, like a late night something. At the time, Craig Kilborn had left The Daily Show and they were looking to replace him. And I actually auditioned at the same time. They, they wanted to give the job to Jon Stewart immediately, but he wasn't sure he was wanted to do movies or TV shows. So they auditioned a bunch of people and I was in one of those auditions. And that would have been my dream job, like that kind of a show at that point. Uh, because I didn't think, because I was coming from this goofy irreverent Chicago show and because I was a sports guy I never thought I had a legitimate path to network news at all I thought I had sort of blown that so when I was leaving Chicago I'm like I, my dream is to go to Hollywood and come up with a show or create something but at this but at the same time there were two general managers one at the ABC station in LA and the other in San Francisco and they were rivals within the same company and they both needed sports guys and they both took a shine to me and it was this great sort of leverage. And I got the guy in LA to promise that he would develop a show if I came and did sports, that I could do something else too. And then I got there and realized that they don't really, the economics don't work out like that anymore. They don't make shows at the local level anymore. Not since Regis and Kathy Lee, does that sort of make sense financially? So he, and he just wanted me to do sports. And you get very little sympathy, you know, bitching about going to Laker games and sitting on the front row. and going to bowl games and, you know, spring training. I mean, it was an amazing job that most most sports guys would, would kill for. I just just got – I just was kind of bored with the, the repetitiveness of it. And, you know, my show – I would craft these shows and put a lot into it and it get blown out for high-speed chase on the 405. <laughs> and people in L.A., they were more – they weren't like Chicago or Green Bay fans where they, they hungered. You could get your sources from a million different places then, your information. Anyway, and so I think the real thing that turned it for me was 9-11. And because I was the sports guy, they, and that story was such a seismic thing, they sent me home for a couple of weeks. And that really made me question, like, what am I doing if, I, if I'm not relevant on the day like this, you know, when everybody on the air should have some story to tell, whether it's at a blood bank or... And so that's... That's when I started counting down to the end of that contract, and I knew I would. I knew I had to try something else before I settled in and be a sportscaster forever, you know. Um, and so, but but at first, I thought that was going to be scripted. I thought that was going to be Hollywood, and I really wanted to still create shows. And I immediately, I my contract ended at KBC, and I went out, got a bunch of meetings around town because people knew me from the sports. It was easy to get in with people, and they'd say, "Well, do you want to do a talk show? Let's do a pilot." or let's do a half-hour comedy set in a newsroom, that kind of stuff. So I spent a year working on all that, and none of it ever made. I met all these incredible actors and writers, and you realize that they have wonderful lifestyles, but nothing ever ends up on the screen. That's changed now, <clears throat> since now with legacy television and binge-watching, and there's all this content now. I think the quality is so much better and vaster than it was then, but... Then it was all about pilot seasons and stuff like, and auditions. And I tasted just enough of it to know I, I could never do it. And then uh, they started Good Morning America Weekend, and this woman at ABC who had been sort of following me since Chicago came calling. And uh, 
I, turns out I did have a pass back to network players and that was just a huge way. And what was your first thought? Like you had, like they, they come in and call for good morning America. Was it like immediately like this is it or were you, were you still like kind of in that mode where like, Oh, the next thing I write is going to be it. Well, my, and that's going to be the thing that makes it. <laughs> no, my, no, that's it. My, um, my first honest reaction was you got to be kidding. There's not somebody in London in your London bureau or like, <laughs> you know, who's been coming up through the ranks who, who wants this job being like, you're going to throw a network morning show anchor job to some guy who is, I've been sitting in my bathrobe for the last year, like writing hacky screenplays, you know, and going on auditions. But you know, they were looking for a certain chemistry and this woman, Amy Antelis, I really owe her everything because she, she's a main talent person at ABC for many years and among the people she discovered was along with me was Chris Cuomo and Jake Tapper and Jim Shudo and John Berman and much of the frontline roster that came over from ABC and then a lot of like David Muir and, and a lot of the folks over there. So how did, how did you garner that relationship with her? Like, was it through your agent? Was it through you? Like, how did that networking go down? I think it was my agent that I had my first agent who uh, got me to WGN once I had that tape. And I was able to put together this really uh, iconoclastic, like irreverent resume tape that would, you know, if you're used to looking at resume tapes, there's a formula to them. And mine was just broke all the rules of that because we were on the show that let us do all these stupid things. And so I think she just saw that and, and something clicked and, and she just is really good at her job. So the first time, next time she came to Chicago, she took me out to lunch and it's really about who are you? What do you believe in? You know, what kind of person are you? And she's like a scout, you know, she was, so she's banking people that I think she believes in, not only just in terms of, cosmetics or whatever you think a TV person should be, but more than that, substantive. So I was grateful to be in her posse and it really helped. And then when I got to ABC, I I wasted a couple of years trying to doing my impersonation of what I thought a network news correspondent should be. But when I got there, Peter Jennings was still alive doing the news and Ted Koppel was doing Nightline and, you know, it was, it was like the last of the glory days of the last three when the anchors really were the big oracles of God, you know? And so I spent a couple of years trying to reinvent myself as this earnest. And at a certain point I realized that's not what got me there. And it wasn't until I started going back to my instincts from doing the sports days that people started noticing the stories. And when you do that, it takes a while. And I tell that to everybody that I meet who's coming up in any sort of field, in this space as a writer, producer, filmmaker, journalist. The sooner you can find your own voice and have comfort, confidence in it, the better. You know, and that's what's so great about the age of podcasting. You guys are doing those. I'm a big believer in that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. You know, it's about reps. And, uh, and so it took a lot of reps before... I was able to tell stories that I thought people would want more of, you know, but once you get there, that's, that's the sweet spot. Was there, was there a moment in your time at good morning America that like sticks out the most as like, cause I mean, that's, that's a show where it's almost like the, I don't, for lack of a better phrase, the quirkiest thing kind of can, can pop off. Like, is yeah. there, is there a moment that sticks in your mind? Like, okay, I, I, like I knew this was going to get weird. I didn't think this was going to get that weird. 
I, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, uh, it was such a different, our appetites have changed so much, even though it's only been, you know, 10 years since I was there. But I was thinking the other day about, they used to, if I was filling in for Charlie Gibson on the weekday show with Diane Sawyer or Robin Roberts, um, they would send you a binders the night before of research because you would have an eight-minute interview with a Senator Joe Biden about like a piece of legislation, you know, like there was these long, and, and now the, the, the appetite, the attention span is so small that those kind of segments don't get done anymore. But it was always goofy and it was always, you know, a lot of corporate synergy stuff could be owned by Disney and, you know, ABC Entertainment was tied to us. We were a promotional engine for them. And I always just didn't have much patience for that. So I remember we were doing like early on, early days of Dancing with the Stars, like the show was just taken off and you got to interview the cast the next morning after somebody loses and pretend like this is relevant at all. And I I remember asking like, I, I said, just give me the highlights about the soap opera of the show. Who's the villain knows that? And they said, oh, this guy, Max is the villain and I asked him live and like so Max why why are you such a jerk why are you so such an ass to the ladies or something and it the reaction was so violent <laughs> that guy had insulted this stupid sh- dancing show um, I don't know I mean I think you need a certain I guess you need a certain constitution to do the, those like celebrity driven shows without sort of laughing at it a little bit but uh, but at the same time, that show gave me access to the most incredible people, you know, profiles of Paul McCartney and Peter O'Toole and just really fascinating, you know, from presidents to CEOs. And, and for the curious, it's really, that was a real, it was really fun. And were you writing your, were you still writing your own shows at this point or like, like trying to get ideas off the ground? Like, did that ever stop? Or like when you first got to Good Morning America? I think, yeah, I mean, we're all, you're always thinking in terms of, at ABC, like once you're, every show was its own little, for, for years, Rune Arledge built a real rivalry between shows. He thought it made everybody better if he had Barbara Walters and Diane Sawyer competing for the same celebrity booking or whatever. And it really pitted the shows against each other as rivals. I was there in an era when they were trying to bring that together. So I would do pieces for Nightline and I'd do stories for World News Tonight and the Sunday morning shows. And because there was that real estate, there was Primetime Live and 2020 Magazine Hours, they were always looking for original ideas. So I was pitching stuff and doing specials for them. And you would hope, I mean, I remember they came to me early on and said, we got this show, it's like a social experiment with hidden cameras, and they're call it, what would you do? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, I think I get bored with that, you know? And it's, it's still going. Like, John Quinones is, you know, killing it. And he's like a meme, you know. Uh, so you never know what what's going to catch him. But, yeah, I think you're always in this world thinking about what would be another great show. Uh, that's where the Wonderlist idea came from. Yeah. And, what, and the Wonderlist idea, is that was that something you had with you, like, from, like, Austin days? Or was that the... the like where was the seed of that it came out over time uh you know i was pitching 
I always love magazine shows on the road with Charles Corral, early 60 minutes, the mixture, the high and low, like <clears throat> politics and culture together in a basket. When I was doing sports, I found this letter actually that I wrote to Ted Shaker, who's now a friend, but at the time he was an executive at CBS Sports. I was in Green Bay and I pitched him basically Sports Illustrated for television. I would follow the candle calendar around the year, you know, so you do an hour from the Masters and then you get into Match Madness and or whatever the order is. Kentucky Derby, all the way through the World Series. And you do a magazine, you know, you do a piece on the game itself, but also one on the ticket scalpers or something on the infield crowd at Churchill Downs, whatever. And I laid out this whole thing and sent it to him. So I was, I was always thinking in terms of what's a good framing device. And the Wonderlist came out of, uh, when I was at ABC, they finally, they, they started sending me overseas a lot more. And Diane Sawyer was a big champion of that. She said, go to China and like figure out what's happening in China. This is like in 2004. And that's when I fell in love with just exploratory sights and sounds and smells and trying to figure out well, how do they organize themselves differently from us. And what's, and, and then when I go to a hurricane or something, it was always about sort of drive by, do the live shots. When I found most satisfaction, just spending time in a place, you know? And so I was always thinking in those terms, like, how do I, how do I get to go somewhere for a week and figure out what the story is? And so the wonder list, the device was, Olivia's, my daughter's going to be my age in the year 2050. I wonder how many of the wonders of the world will be left in what form. And then once you come up with just sort of that basic thing, it, it gives you license to go a lot of different places. Because change is the, really the driver and change is a renewable resource. When, when you're like, so she, you said like, she just said, you're going to China, like figure out what to cover there. Like at the time it was their, their model of capitalism was just sort of taken off. So it was a novelty that you could go to Beijing and see this glimmering, shining new ball because for the generations prior to that, after Mao, the cultural revolution, communism, poverty, it was just the poorest, dirtiest country in the world. And now suddenly this dragon was unleashed economically. So yeah, I want to go, I know they make all our Nikes, so I want to go to a Nike shoe factory and I want to go to Shanghai and meet developers who are getting into tech and do the Great Wall and do the Panda Reserve and stuff that people associate there, but just dig a little deeper. So was that. It was pretty easy. But then when you get there and you realize, oh, I thought it was going to be this, but it's this over here, and this is a whole different angle I didn't think about. That's, that's the stuff that was, was really special and enlightening because so often in newsrooms, they, you pitch a story and they want you to go get that specific story. And sometimes you get there and you realize, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> you know, the story is over here. And that's why I found again and again on the Wonder List where people we hired as interpreters would be characters in the show or trips we took never made it in but we, but as a result of being there somebody said hey you should go see this and when that ends up being the main opening scene you know i love that and so but, in the, oh, go ahead david i was just gonna say like when they sent you to new orleans like what what was your were you like i can't wait to get down there or were you like oh like this is oh, yeah. this, this is this is gonna be like <clears throat> a little scary down here no, no. It was every, you, you were trying to get yourself in those stories. You're pitching, you're, you're scrambling. That's the whole charge is to be 
like, oh, there's a category four in the storm going, I'm in. How do I get in there? Or there's civil unrest here or an invasion happening. Most people, it's just a sickness. You want to go. And it's even perverse enough to where, like, when I was in Afghanistan, we asked to go up into the Korngal and Pesh valleys where the heaviest fighting was happening. I really wanted to see it, like, up in the mountains on the Pakistan border. And when they approved it, we made my camera guy like, yes, because they weren't really taking journalists in there anymore. And then we would go out on patrol every day, and these guys would be like, all right, get ready, boys. Here we go. We're going into this viper nest. And nothing would happen. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, you see some goats, you look at some birds, you argue with some villagers. Did you have a gun? Like, did you have a plant? Like, <clears throat> no, I didn't have a gun. No, we're not allowed to. My body armor on, um, and you're you're attached to, you know, officers and soldiers around you. But when we finally got into a firefight, it actually happened. It was like, yay! Because <laughs> you have no perspective of how brutal it can get or how scary it could be or how deadly it is. You just came to see some action, and finally there's some action. Uh, you see enough of it, and you don't want to see enough, you know, anymore. Um, so I think, yeah, I think uh, uh, the first rush of I'm going into a story, I mean, the ones that I resist or the ones that say that we want you to go cover this, really, I, I love most of them, but the ones I like, I, I absolutely hate our, our shootings, like mass shooting, because there's never a redemptive arc to it. It's just misery by the dozens, you know, and to have to go talk, try to talk to parents who are grieving. My least favorite part of the job. And so now today, like with the being the chief climate correspondent, like is what drew you to that sort of that same that same concept that you know climate is kind of the the da- like the danger zone or for where yeah. our society is right now. I think it really came out of um, my dad was an avid outdoorsman, and my formative years, my favorite memories were going to hike in Rocky Mountain National Park or in arches or uh, skiing out west or climbing or paddling and and really having this awesome reverence for nature but also a sense of how quickly it could go away if we're not careful and how human nature is this force that we don't even fully understand of our own power. So that was really at the soul of what the Wonderlist was about. Uh, it, was, it looked at change, sometimes environmental, sometimes cultural or political. But it allowed me to explore the ways because it's really covering the climate and what's happening, the enormity of it, the slowness of it, the difficulty of it to, to photograph in some ways makes it a huge story toward challenge, storytelling challenge. But I think it's hugely important. So we've got to figure out ways to do that. And I think it just came to the conversation where when Houston has five 500-year storms in three years or and when the conversation at so many dinner tables driven by people like Greta and other, you know, young folks who are looking at the scientific warning lights and saying, what, why are we not talking about this more often? I think it's changed enough to the point where my boss has said, hey, we think climate should be a full-time beat. Would you do that? And I spent most of my career resisting a beat because I didn't want to be pigeonholed as like a military guy or the politics or transportation and then you miss out on stuff. I'd much rather be a generalist. But yeah, I think that this is the story because it's everything. It's everything. It's history and it's psychology and it's 
physics and it's transportation and construction and agriculture and shipping and immigration and geopolitics and and right now we try to think about it like a menu item you know going into a debate which of these items we care about as a voter and it's climate is in there climate is the whole restaurant everything else is on the menu of the climate and and when you go dig into the story and you talk to scientists who live with this and you realize it's like coronavirus you know there were virologists trying to warn us and if we could go back in time man i bet we'd listen to them a little different same same with this story i think i got i got one i well i might have two but i have one one big one question written down here okay. uh you're uh like you've this is just a selfish sports fan question. You've seen so you've seen so many. You've been live at so many great events. Like, what makes it different being there for like I, iconic historic moments, like the Bulls, like the Christian Leitner finals? Like, what's what's the main difference between being there and watching it on TV? Yeah, I think it it varies so much uh, by your own personal experience. You know, is colored by the smells and the spilled beers and the, you know, deadlines or whatever it is you're dealing with externally that goes into it. It's like anytime you and your boys venture to an event, those memories are specific. And a lot of times you don't realize how these events are going to hold up, you know, in history, right? And because uh, you go from the Bulls dynasty into the Lakers dynasty and it takes this long like nostalgic lens back and to realize wow I can't believe I was and I have this huge I'm cleaning doing spring cleaning out at my cabin and I have this huge box of old press passes I was digging through you realize it just goes by in a blur and it's like stuff from everything from Princess Diana's memorial to presidential inaugurations to shuttle launches, you know, Cape Canaveral to, uh, you know, these national championship games or these Super Bowls. And it's all kind of a blur, you know. And I, some of them, like, when my Packers won their first Super Bowl in the Superdome in New Orleans, and Brett Favre threw, like, this insane opening touchdown to Andre Risen, like, one of these seminal moments in Packer Lord. I was like running in the bowels of the Superdome like from the satellite truck. Missed it entirely. Much rather it would have been in a bar in Green Bay, you know, and because our seats sucked or something, you know, and the press box was way in the rafters. And so it's a lot of those kind of memories. And But it's just, I mean, there's nothing like, nothing like being in a championship locker room when champagne is spraying. And uh, you're live on TV. It's really it's it's a it's a thrilling thing. And I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have in, in retrospect. But that's the case with everything in life. So Jake and I just started this podcast a week week and a half ago. We're we're just starting to learn how to interview people. You you got any any tips for us uh, moving forward? Just trying to get to know um, you know the person on our podcast who we're interviewing better. I think you guys are doing a great job. You're good listeners. That's that's the main battle. Is uh, is you one? Here's the best interviewing tip I ever got. If you start a question with a verb, it means the answer is either yes or no. So, do you? Would you? Did you guys start this podcast because you're thirsty for fame? 
And the answer is either yes or no. It, it, it's, you're, you're if, if, like, if we were, we were, we were doing a terrible job. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but if I phrase it that way and I start with a verb, instead, if you start questions with how or why, it forces an answer. So why did you guys start this podcast? I don't color it. I don't color the question with anything. I just throw it in your lap and it's incumbent on you. But that runs counter to the way we converse generally. We like to interject and put ourselves into the stories when the best questions are sort of neutral and open. How would you characterize how the last half hour went, David? <laughs> I, I thought I thought it went, uh, we just flipped the script. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was expecting this. <laughs> Uh, I, I thought I thought it went really it went great. Um, that's that's an awesome tip. I, I'm taking notes right now. And a, and a great way to end it, Bill. Where uh, where can our listeners find you? Where where do you, what do you want them to tune into? Uh, yeah, this, this you should go to um, Yeah, absolutely. You can go to uh, CNN Go app or or video on demand on your satellite or your cable or Apple TV and search for CNN Special Reports and watch uh, the show I did called The Road to Change, uh, sort of a road trip into the future of the American climate and how it's already changing life as we know it. Awesome. I watched it, and it's unreal. So, uh, thank you, the- brother. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. No worries. Awesome. Bill, can't thank you enough. Appreciate That's you coming great, on. David, yeah. And then- Remember me when you're bigger than uh, Joe Rogan. <laughs> absolutely absolutely just remember to book Joe, me when that's you're a shot at you Joe Rogan you're Joe Rogan size <laughs> we want <laughs> deal